I'm gonna close the door while you're doing that. Hello and welcome to the Race FF podcast. I am your host, Jaime Garcia, and today, you know, this has been a long time coming. Um, I've been super fortunate enough uh, to meet so many people who, in my perspective, have done great things to kind of keep their communities of Honda Challenge going and um, improve in in the sense of uh, the community aspect and helping other racers. But up until now, I have not been able to have a conversation with, you know, the people who have started it all. And today I am so excited to have one of the three people who helped create Honda Challenge as we know it. And... Of course, today I'm talking about Matt Bookler. Matt, thank you for coming on. I really do appreciate you coming on. And uh, yeah, so um, as we were starting out, I I really want to know what was your first Honda that you took out to the track? First Honda I took to the track was uh, I had a 94 Prelude VTEC. Oh, snap. I like those. The round bodies. Yep, it yeah. was fourth generation. Um, I got it my senior year in college and never had any intention at the time I bought it that it was going to become a track car. Mm-hmm. But right around the time that I got that car, mm-hmm. um, my dad got a new car. Oh. So I was in, um, I was in my dorm and I, I live pretty close to home. I got a call from my mom one day saying, come outside and, and wait for your dad. He wants mm. to show you something. Huh. And okay, you know, kind of mysterious mm-hmm. type call. And you have to understand with my dad, you know, he, he, he was a car guy, mm-hmm. did, but did not change cars very often. Okay. Um, put things in perspective. When he was 28 years old, he bought a 1967 Corvette new from the dealership. Mm-hmm. Um, he's now 84 and he still has that Corvette. <laughs> That's dope. Uh, yeah. He, he's owned it for, for 57 years at this point. Oh, wow. Um, so I get a call. Dad wants to show you something. Okay. So I'm, I'm standing outside of my dorm and I did, it wasn't, didn't even see it at first. I heard the downshift. <laughs> you heard the and red my match. Head snapped and there was a black 92 NSX. Coming down the the road and pulls into the parking lot and pulls up, tinted window goes down, and my dad's sitting in the driver's seat of this thing. Oh, snap! The the background here, I have, we had a neighbor uh, who was an automotive wholesaler, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. mostly dealt, you know, BMWs, Mercedes, that kind of stuff. He'd buy them wholesale, clean them up, flip them retail. Mm -hmm. Um, But he got his hands on an NSX. And wow. it was, this was 94. It was a 92, had 17,000 miles on it. Brand new. Immaculate <laughs> condition. Um, and he, he was just showing it to my dad. He was just showing off, basically. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. They, they brought it over to show me. So me thinking, okay, this is like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, 
all I asked for was, can I drive it for, you know, South Campus? I went to Villanova. South Campus at Villanova was a loop. Mm-hmm. So can I can I take this NSX around the loop? Because <laughs> I wanted to be able to say, like, check the box. I drove an NSX uh-huh, once in my uh-huh. life. Took the thing around the loop, thought, thought that was the end of it. My dad ended up buying the car. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, so, that's so dope. So he had an NSX and this is, you know, we're talking now we're getting into like 95, 96, early days of the internet. So I start looking around. I'm on Temple of VTech. Wow. VTech actually hooked me up with this NSX uh, listserv that was going on. (laughs) And literally the day I joined this NSX listserv, a guy posts Anybody interested in doing a NSX get together river run near Princeton, New Jersey? Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm Philadelphia area, so Princeton, New Jersey is about 45 minutes away. Okay. It's not a big hike or anything. So we end up meeting up with this group, this mm-hmm. this early river run. This is like I said, I think it was '96. Um, ended up with I think eight NSXs. That's dope. Just driving through the back roads and everything. But it, the guy who set this up, his name was Don Gallo. He was started getting into track events mm-hmm. with his NSX. And we, we became pretty friendly. Um, he actually invited me out to NS Expo, uh, which that year was at Mid-Ohio. Mm. So we hop in his NSX, um, drive out to Mid-Ohio. And who do they have there? Um, as part of this this whole big event, but the real time. Oh no way! The entire real time team. What? That's dope. Now, now you got to remember the era we're talking about. Yeah. Cunningham, Pierre Kleinubing, Michael Galati, all of them. Wow. They, they had their NSX there. They <sighs> had uh, two Type Rs, which were brand new at the time. This is 98. So That's two right. brand new Type R race cars. That's right. They actually had a Prelude VTech. Um, but all of them were there. And I was a huge, I had been watching World Challenge. For, oh, yeah. Speed Vision and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I love watching the World Challenge races and, and mm-hmm. cheering for that NSX. So I was having some great conversations with, with Peter Cunningham. Um, <laughs> we, we, were, we were hitting it off. And meanwhile, I was 23. I think Pierre was 21, mm-hmm. but we were by far like the two youngest of yeah, anybody yeah, yeah. who was there. So Pierre and I were hanging out together. <laughs> um, and between Peter and, and Pierre, they convinced me that I needed to start autocrossing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I was like, all right. I So I took my prelude out and mm-hmm. I started doing some autocrossing with Philly Region SCCA. Mm-hmm. Did about... Five events. My my first event out, I actually won the novice class. Oh, look which at was you. great because I'm I'm now thinking I'm the greatest thing since like <laughs> bread. You know, I won the novice class, and then they bumped me up into G stock where I'm going up against the people who actually like knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And I figured out by the next event that I was not quite as fast as I thought <laughs> I was. Um, but then the same same guy Don Gallo calls me up. I'm doing a track day at Pocono. You mm-hmm. want to come up there and hang out with me? Great. Go up to Pocono. Again, you know, hour and a half drive. No big deal. Mm-hmm. And back then, kind of wild, wild west. But 
even as a beginner student, mm-hmm. he one didn't have an instructor and two was allowed to take passengers. Oh, wow. So he was in the beginner group and I'm sitting shotgun with him and we go out in his NSX out on the track at Pocono. Wow. And we start dicing it out with a, a Nissan NX 2000. Oh, oh yeah. I know those ones. Who who was probably having the time of his life being able to say he was fighting it out with an NSX Mm because it's not exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but that was, by the time that event was over, I I was, I was done. I was just like, this is my entire life has Mm -hmm. been building to this. Mm -hmm. Like I need to get my car on a track. Mm -hmm. So I did, um, an event with a group called um, PDA performance drivers association Mm -hmm. up at Lime Rock, Connecticut, took my prelude up there, get my first instructor. It's a guy with a Viper. So perfect, perfect perfect. Perfect. You're going to take a guy with a Viper and have him instruct in a prelude. Mm -hmm. And I go out for the first session and I don't know if you ever had this experience, but every, nothing was working. Everything he was telling me, my brain was screaming to me, this is so incredibly wrong. Yeah. Like, and, and he was getting pissed at me because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like, no, like, <laughs> he's telling me when to turn in and what did, I'm like, no, what are you doing? And finally he goes, all right, you know what? He goes, I want you to stand, go stand in the, um, the start finish tower. Mm-hmm. He goes, I'm going to go out in my Viper and I'm going to do an under one minute lap. Mm-hmm. He goes, and if I do that, he goes, I want you to agree that you're going to listen to me and, mm-hmm. and tell, do what I tell you to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, fine. So I go, I go up to the tower. He goes out in the Viper, does his warm up lap and I'm waiting and I'm, I'm standing there. And, and, you know, for anyone who doesn't know what Lime Rock looks like, mm-hmm. you've got what's referred to as the diving turn mm-hmm. that leads to the front straight. And then the long front straight, then it kind of loops around into what's called big bend. Mm-hmm. So I'm waiting for him to come down the diving turn and this Viper comes down. And as he comes through the diving turn, I see him just sliding dead sideways, goes right off the track. His left <laughs> wheels dig in. Oh no. This Viper does a barrel roll. No. Lands back on its wheels again. No. Goes backwards into the tire wall, bounces off the tire wall and lands on its nose, completely vertical. What? Just boom, the in the tire wall, straight up and down like a flag. Wow. And I, I went there with my friend Josh, and, and Josh just turns to me and he goes, I want you to ignore everything that man said to you. <laughs> so, so meanwhile, I, so I go up did to he, the... Did he do the sub one minute lap in that warm up or no? No, he did not. <laughs> His his time was significantly higher than one minute. So I go up to the head of the event and I said, hey, um, I think I need a new instructor. This one's (laughs) broken. Why is that? I said, well, (laughs) mine's putting his car on a flatbed right now. So the guy who was running it goes, okay, I'll I'll hop in with you. Mm -hmm. So this guy gets in with me. And a guy named Joe Casella. Oh, oh. So Joe Casella gets in the car with me as as my instructor. Mm -hmm. And when I tell you, I mean, everything he said just 
worked. Clicked. It was yeah. exactly right. I went that first, you know, that first session, I think I was doing like 122 laps. By the end of the day, I was down to like a 110. That's <laughs> good. How many times in your life do you take 12 seconds a lap off of your yeah. times? Um, but I mean, it just, everything worked mm-hmm. and it was just, it was just the magical moment. And that so, was in your yeah. prelude, right? Pardon? That was all in the prelude, right? That was all, yep. So, prelude VTech. So what, what was done to that prelude? Because I have in my head an image of that prelude and I, for some reason, think it's either going to be the silver one or the green one. I very rarely see like the black or a white one, but what what black. color? It was black. Oh, all right. What wheels? What wheels? Because that one had the five by one fourteens on there, uh, right? No, they were they were Prelude was was four by hundred. Four by hundred or four by one fourteen? Because I think they were uh, actually a little bit. Because the Civic wheels wouldn't uh, bolt onto those. I think it was yeah, four by one fourteen. Yeah, you're right. They were different. Um. They were four lugs. They were not fives. Yeah, they were so it was four, four but it was four. It was but the you're same. right. You're right. The the spacing was different. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's like the cords uh, at the time where it was yeah. a four by one fourteen, which is like the same as the A eighty six. So the early days, I was running it on the stock wheels, and then mm. I ended up getting the 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 wheels that everybody gotten that day i i had the um the kosai k1s oh they're still dope man i still love those wheels everybody had a set of kosai k1s back then mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean in terms of what was done to it, it was just cold air intake header exhaust um springs and shocks i had nsx calipers on it oh, which course. was a direct bolt on so it was the, huh. the caliper was the exact same size as the Prelude caliper. It's just the Prelude was a um, uh, single caliper piston, and, then, and the NSX, NSX was, was dual, dual caliper. Okay, so. which was the exact same break as the the Legend caliper. Oh it yeah, was, that's the right. NSX that's... and the Legend had the yeah. same one, except for the NSX one actually said NSX on the I mean, caliper. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It was like five hundred dollars more, <laughs> um, but. Outside of that, you know, stainless steel lines, but it was still my daily driver. Mm-hmm. So I didn't go totally crazy. I had a um, an auto power bolt-in roll bar. Yeah. Um, but not a cage, just a bar. Just uh, So it's the four-point. Yeah, four-point yeah. bar. Um, I took the back seats out so I could run the support bars yeah, back yeah, to down. the fender wells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I actually kept the stock seats in it. Uh, I love the the stock leather seats, even though they were heavy as hell. I, I, <laughs> I should have taken them out, but um, and I used that car, that Prelude, um, for all of '98. Mm-hmm. So I I didn't do that first event at Lime Rock until August of '98, mm-hmm. and I ended up doing five track weekends between August and November when everything in the Northeast mm-hmm. shuts down. I got five weekends in. <laughs> So what tire were you running back then? Because again, for most people nowadays, you you have like an embarrassment of riches. But back then, I think it was really... The R1. Want... Oh. The R1. That was your that was your track tire. The uh, Toyo the RA1? Uh, no, no, not the RA1. The R1. Oh. Your, your, the Toyo RA1 was much later. 
Oh. BF Goodrich R1 was oh. the only track tire that was a, like that was widely reasonable available. price yeah. and everybody ran them. Oh, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Man. Yeah, and then and then Kumo came along with a couple of options. Mm-hmm. Um and then after Kumo, then Toyo had a couple. Mm-hmm. I never went to Hoosiers on that on that prelude. I never tried going to Hoosiers on it, but um, I did run the R1s. So the R1s were were those also your daily tires? So you would no, draw- no, no. I, I I switched them out once oh, I started doing that. Okay, okay. I think okay. I just had Potenzas on it for. Oh, okay. So you had like a true uh, R comp uh, on the car. The. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd swap them when I get to the track. I I had the extra set of wheels. Okay, see, you you were smart. You weren't like me when I first started going out, where I just uh, got like a set of a Falcon Zennies and then uh, tried to go out with those and daily drive. So it, the, yeah. the funniest thing with that Prelude was um, the brakes overheating was always a problem. Mm-hmm. So I came up with a solution. I I cut out holes in the front bumper where the factory fog lights would go mm-hmm. if it was a Japanese yeah, yeah, yeah. model. And I ran dryer duct tubing. Hey. So it, it, I made it like a 90 degree turn coming down. And then I turn it under the car. I zip tie it to the tow hooks under mm-hmm. the car. Mm-hmm. And then I bend it around 90 degrees at the caliper. Mm-hmm. So it would blow on the rotor. And then I throw a couple zip ties like to the, the shock towers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was so remarkably effective. <laughs> It gave me a ground clearance. I, I had to be really careful with the curbs. Oh, yeah. Because I had a ground clearance of like an inch <laughs> with, these, with, these dry, with these ones going under. And the worst possible scenario is that you'd lose one of them and you'd still oh, have the other. Because you'd have good brakes on, on one side. side of the yeah. car and not the other. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, that car, I had that car for 17 years. I kept Damn. that car until it, it the rust finally started getting. The oh best yeah, of that's it. right. You guys are northeast. You your cars die yeah. eventually. Yeah, that's that's wild, <sighs> man. I I mean, very few people remember how nice of a car that Prelude was because I remember that the first time I saw one of those was when I was working with my dad doing auto detail. And it had a digital ga- uh, dash, and it had a CD player, which was a big deal back then, because <laughs> you would be able to have that like giant notebook of CDs, and then you'd be able to swap them out right there. And having the factory one, that that was dope, because it also had, um, I don't know if you had to deal with this, anybody who had a Golden Era Hondas knew that... You had to have um, what was it the security code for the for the stereo the radio. <laughs> because they would yep. get stolen and anytime you change your battery you're like oh crap what was the code again you have to yeah, have it that was, it was on a little tag <laughs> hanging in the trunk would have that stupid little security code on it yep yep I remember that well but yeah that that H twenty two you know, speaking of, of old days of the internet, there used mm-hmm. to be a site called IHateVTech.com. 
And it was it was a site for like car guys who just thought that all the VTech hype was was mm-hmm. bull, and they they and you and I remember going on the site, and there's a disclaimer on the site mm-hmm. that said the comments on this website do not apply to the H22A. <laughs> <laughs> And it was that H22, I'll, I'll tell you what, I mean, there was a reason why when we created the the Honda Challenge classes, H2 was Type R's mm-hmm. and Prelude VTEX. Mm-hmm. Because on the track, they were neck and neck. Mm-hmm. Like the, obviously the Type R was a lot lighter, but mm-hmm. man, did that H22 have torque. Mm-hmm. It was a 2.2 liter versus a 1.8. And that thing, that well, H22 yeah. was a monster. Well, you're talking about like half a liter, uh, almost half a liter in size of a difference. And that's quite significant. So, yeah. I, I used to run, I go with like the Porsche Club. And mm. I remember being up at Watkins Glen with that Prelude. And I was going at it with a guy in a 911 <laughs> Turbo. And we got to the end of the session. And I, you know, parked the car in the paddock. And this guy comes storming over to my car, <laughs> and he just goes, "Pop the hood," and I'm like, what? "He, want, he, he right, wants to see the, the turbo. He, he wants to see the." He lifts it up, and he just goes, "God damn it!" <laughs> and I'm like, "What?" He goes, "I thought at least you had a turbo on here or something," <laughs> and I'm like, "2.2 liter straight four," <laughs> and he was, he just puts the hood back down and storms off like he was so mad. You you should have just like ended it at at that point and just uh, said it softly, "Hey, sell it." <laughs> it was, that was that was probably my favorite oh, thing to man, do was dumb. go to like a Porsche Club event with that that Prelude and just oh. I was known as that kid in the Prelude. And you know when you're <laughs> when you're at an event, you know people don't know who you are when your helmet's off mm-hmm. or or whatever. And I remember I was walking through the garage at Watkins Glen and there was a group of guys talking who I knew were in my run group. They mm-hmm. were standing around by one of the cars and I heard him say like, oh, did anybody pass you that session? And he goes, no. Oh, well, just that kid in the prelude. And the guy <laughs> just gives him like a, well, yeah, obviously. Like, and I'm just like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that kid that's in right. the prelude. That kid in the prelude, he's a menace. <laughs> oh, that's so dope. So, obviously, the timeline is going from, you know, late 90s, 2000s, and now we're getting into what I think is a a very important time where um, I think you sent me a link to this, um, the original post on Honda Tech, where um, I'm, I'm trying to scroll it up, but I Carl think, Schultz was was the one who who put it out there. But the title of the post is "Crazy Idea." What about a Honda slash Acura Club Racing Program? And that was uh, I have the date here. And the cool thing about Honda Tech is that it shows you um, the actual hour it was posted. So this is um, it looks like June. First, 2001 at 7.56 p.m. That's where, um, yeah. That's when Honda Challenge was born. Yep. Right at that point. So, and, and, I mean, Carl gets 
all the credit in the world because mm-hmm. th- this was entirely Carl's idea. Mm-hmm. Um, he posted that up to Honda Tech, th- this concept mm-hmm. of, you know, we knew there was BMW club racing mm-hmm. and there was Porsche club racing, mm-hmm. but they all had their own groups. Yeah. There was the BMW Club of America. They were doing their own events. So, of mm-hmm. course, they were running their BMW race series. Mm-hmm. And the the basic thought behind it was, like, how do we have a Honda race series? Mm-hmm. And we knew we had, all right, there were multiple, you know, whatever you want to call them, subgroups that were out there in existence. Yeah. So you had a whole group of guys who were out there. And, and it's probably, I'm, I'm trying to think like, am I, am I being sexist saying guys, but at that time I'm really not like, yeah. it, it is the literal truth. It was mm-hmm. a group of guys, mm-hmm. um, who were out there racing in SCCA, mm-hmm. uh, ITA with the CRXs, ITC mm-hmm. had the civics and, and the lower powered CRXs. Um, you SPL. had some type R's starting to get in there mm-hmm. uh, or I'm sorry, GSRs. Mm-hmm. But they were not classed well. There was not mm-hmm. they they didn't fit in well in the classing system. So that's like group one. Um, I was racing at that point. I I had a CRX that I was racing. I started in two thousand, mm-hmm. uh, but I was racing it with NASA in what was the equivalent of ITC. Uh, we called it Pro Sedan Three. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I was kind of over in that camp, and then you had a second camp. Mm-hmm. which was a group of guys who were instructing mm-hmm. in Hondas. And they wanted to get into racing, but SCCA kind of had a reputation at the time of being just Wild West cowboy, you know, bump and bang your way through the grid. And, mm-hmm. and you know, nobody wanted their cars ruined mm-hmm. is what really was was sort of the motivation there. So that you had that group who had the talent, mm-hmm. they had the skill, they've, they've been doing it long enough, but they don't want their cars all banged and, and destroyed. Yeah. So that's that's cohort two. And then cohort three was more of a long-term plan where, mm. you know, the import scene was so big and yeah. you had so many Hondas out mm-hmm. there at the drag races. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, if we came up with something that was equally cool, mm-hmm. Could we get some of those drag race guys to come over and race with us? Yeah, because at this time, like the drag race, like people forget what Hondas uh, did for the drag race community. Like you talked about the H22 and how people knew that, oh, a Honda with a turbo is like stupid. Like that is scary fast. And that was because of all the drag racers out there that were doing all of these things with the swaps h swaps and whatnot out there drag racing and everybody knew if you saw freaking a honda with a little spoolie spoolie boy um watch out because that is gonna freaking really embarrass people and oh, yeah. yeah um yep. you know it, I, I think people don't understand how pivotal at least for me um when i was coming into the scene is how much of a resource honda tech was like if you were doing anything related to hondas there was a write-up a diy 
rest in peace, uh, Tiny Pick uh, and uh, Flickr. Um, they were hosting those images <laughs> that are now gone forever. But there would be people that did like detailed pinouts for uh, wiring VTEC on non VTEC harnesses. All of yeah. these in very like niche things. I, I remember even buying stuff from their marketplace back when they had it. So, I mean, this is like such a a perfect resource to try and pull people that are involved in Hondas. And yeah, to start it off there, it it is wild. And one of the things that was mentioned in there was that 1313 rule um, that BMW Club, I think, um, was listed as having. Where... Yeah, the, the BMW Club was very much considered like a gentleman series. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that they discouraged contact was from the 1313 rule, mm-hmm. which said that if you cause contact with another car on the track, you go on to a 13 month probationary period. Mm-hmm. And during that probationary period, if you cause contact with another car, you are kicked out of the series for 13 months. Mm hmm. So that's where the 1313 comes from. It's 13 month probation and then followed by 13 months of exile mm-hmm. um, if you cause contact. Mm-hmm. So that was part of the the original plan was that we wanted to include a 1313 rule. But you realize, of course, you know, the problem that that brings into the, the equation mm-hmm is you can't be sharing the track with anybody else who's also racing mm-hmm. because if they're out there on the track with you and they're not subject to a 1313 rule uh, then you you've lost control over the situation yeah because now you're being held to a different standard that the other uh, car is not being held to and uh for those that might not understand this by what uh bookler's uh, alluding to is that you would need to have your own run group because you can't have, you know, like a spec Miata running at the same time because, you know, bump drafting is a thing in uh, spec Miata and they are known spec Piñata for a reason. And yeah, you're not going to be able to do a 1313 rule right there because it's like, oh, uh, spec Miata hit me in the rear. It's like, well, yeah, they do that. That's what they do. So you can't change that out. So you you bring up a point that needs to be addressed is that if you guys are going to be able to push this series, you need to have your own run group. And the issue with that is... Issue with that is you need to have enough cars on the track mm-hmm. that it's financially justified for somebody to to have that class out there. So... You know, when you're renting a track, you've got to think of it from a perspective of dollars per hour. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, let's say you've got 10 cars out on the track, that's only 10 people paying mm-hmm. registration fees. You're losing money every if you've got 10 people out on the track. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, some of the original plans when we first started talking through it was, you know, were we going to try to form our own club? Mm-hmm and rent the tracks ourselves and and go through everything like that but that's that's a whole yeah other that's, level of commitment yeah that's ridiculous in so terms of the it was proposed this idea that we go to nasa mm-hmm. and work with nasa on this 
Um, so at the time, you know, Scott, uh, Carl, Scott, who we've not mentioned yet, mm-hmm. um, Scott Giles and, and I all were running with NASA. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had already been racing with NASA for a couple of years and it was kind of felt that out of the, the group of us, I probably had the best relationship mm-hmm. with, um, I'll throw another key name out here, Chris Cabeto. Mm-hmm. So Chris was the leader of NASA at the time it was NASA, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it later became known as NASA mid Atlantic, but, um, Chris was, was running the Virginia region. And we knew that that was where we wanted to start just because of that's where we were all located. Yeah. The car um, count and the people. Yeah. So I sent an email to Cabeto mm-hmm. with this proposal of here's what we want to do. Um, you know, everyone will get NASA licenses mm-hmm. in order to, to do this. We'll, we'll go through the cars will all meet NASA tech requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, we will have our own race director to enforce the 1313 mm-hmm. rules. So we didn't want to put that burden mm-hmm. on NASA. Um, and you know, it, it was, you know, like a little kid asking for more allowance kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It was like, Hey, can we do it? <laughs> And and to his credit, I mean, Cabeto was incredibly, incredibly accommodating to us mm-hmm. um, and said, you know, love the idea. This is great. Let's let's figure out a way to make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of the requirement that came together, going back to what the issue was, mm-hmm. was we needed to have 20 cars. Mm-hmm. If we had 20 cars, it could justify having our own run group. And, and that was what our goal was. So when it came time to write the rule book, we wrote the rule book very specifically with that goal in mind of what do we need to do in order to get 20 cars? Because we knew we didn't have enough people from that second cohort who were mm-hmm. instructors who wanted to become racers. Mm-hmm. We had about, I think it was probably about six or seven of them. You know, the, the third cohort, which was people who were drag racers, they mm-hmm. hadn't even built their cars for road racing yet, yeah. let alone gone through the driver's school. So it wasn't going to come from there. Mm-hmm. The place we had to get the cars from were from people who were already racing Hondas in other series and trying to bring them over and entice them that mm-hmm. Honda Challenge is where you belong. Mm-hmm. So, OK, how do you do that? you lower the barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. The thing that's going to prevent most people from joining a new race series is, well, what do I have to change about my car? What do I have to do? And mm-hmm. not to mention, if you're changing something about your car, now you made it a one-way street. Once you modify your car yeah. for this new series, you can't go back to your old series. Mm-hmm. So the most important thing for us was to make sure that people could go back and forth between crossover SCCA and Honda Challenge, EMRA, mm-hmm. which is um, Eastern Motorsports Racing Association, which mm-hmm. was also, you know, Northeast area. Um, so when we put together that original rule book, mm-hmm. not by coincidence, H5 rules mm-hmm. were absolutely identical to SCCA ITC. Ah, uh, H four rules 
We're identical. Absolutely identical to ITA. Yeah. H3 rules were identical to ITS. Mm -hmm. H2 was identical to ITR. Mm. The only class that we had that was totally unique unique to us was H1. Mm -hmm. And that was because, you know, hybrids were just starting to become a thing where people Mm -hmm. were putting B18s into civics. Mm hmm. And but we didn't again, we didn't want to get too out of hand. So Mm -hmm. we kept certain rules in there to keep the series affordable. Mm -hmm. That was a big thing for us was we wanted to make sure that the price, the cost didn't get out of hand. Mm -hmm. So we built in rules that said, like, every part that goes into the engine must be a factory Honda part. (laughs) <laughs> and you're laughing because I'm sure that rule has probably come back to haunt you at some point. Well, I mean, I think about it in terms of like one of the, and we're jumping forward a little bit, one of the most uh, quote unquote um, like controversial bi- builds where somebody put, um, what was it, S2000 pins, pistons in a, in a, I think it was a K-series or something, and they were doing all kinds of funny things over here in SoCal. And, you know, when it's a builder's uh, class like that, and there's no, like, specific horsepower to weight ratio and what you're allowed to mm-hmm. do, people get very, you know, um, Adam Jabay says it uh, very well from uh, Grid Life. He's, uh, you know, ra- racers are like cavemen. They're horrible people. They will find every little inch of uh, area to go ahead and change uh, things out. But yeah, like yep. the, the idea and the spirit of the rules is to try and limit, you know, be people being able to buy their way into a podium. So The, the thought process was, you know, you've got all these aftermarket parts and all these super high compression pistons and you know and we just we didn't want people having to dump Mm -hmm. tens of thousands of dollars into their car to make it competitive Mm -hmm. so we also outlawed lexan Mm -hmm. we outlawed carbon fiber Mm -hmm. um all of those stuff was not allowed in the Mm -hmm. series um for the same the same concept of keeping the cost down Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, you know, that very first year that we ran Honda Challenge, the guy who ended up winning H1 did it in a car that he was driving to and from the track. <laughs> Savage. I love it. Now, I love if you it. think about, you know, what, what H1 has evolved to, you mm-hmm. know, you, you realize how, how far that's gone. But, you mm-hmm. know, to the original spirit of the rules, H1 was won by a car that wasn't even trailered. That's wild. And also, like, let's be honest, because Honda people are also savages in their own right. There are cars that are street-driven that I've seen videos of where you're like, bro, that's not a street car. Like, get the hell out of here. You are driving a death trap with no cage, like on an EF where it's like a B uh, B20 turbo pushing like 400 horse uh, wheel and they're like, yeah, it's a streetcar. I'm like, bro, that thing is wild. Like this, this is some nutty stuff. So yes. Well, I'll confess that the first uh, three years that I was racing, mm-hmm. I had a CRX, you know, auto power bolting cage. Which CRX though? Was it the solid beam rear end or the 
uh, independent uh, so double which one? So oh, I, okay, eighty-eight my, to ninety-one, right? All right. Do we do we want to do an aside here about about my first yes, my first yes, yes. race car? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, so little little devi little mm-hmm. deviation from mm-hmm. the Honda Challenge story here. So, um, ninety-nine going in two thousand, and they I'm reading Grassroots Motorsport. Mm-hmm. And find out that, you know, this group that had just only been out in California was going to open its first um, branch out here on the East Coast called NASA. Mm-hmm. Ne- never heard of NASA other than, you know, the, the rocket ship guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never heard of NASA before. So I start, you know, it's like, hmm. And, you know, if you're interested, there was a contact name there. And actually, for the first year of NASA Virginia, um, John Felton was the person who was leading it. Um, mm-hmm. John Felton is still involved in in motorsports out here, but after a year, it, it kind of turned over to Chris Cabeto. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember reaching out to John Felton and talking to him on the phone, having a long conversation with him on mm-hmm. the phone. And I made the decision at the time that I was going to start racing. So I had done Skip Barber Racing School. Mm-hmm. And despite the fact that in the Skip Barber Racing School, you do absolutely no wheel-to-wheel whatsoever. <laughs> you, you get behind a formula, the wheel of a formula car, and you get instruction from professionals, but you do no wheel-to-wheel. Mm-hmm. But at the end of it, they hand you a competition license for SCCA. <laughs> so I had a competition license. Um, I look in the classifieds of, of grassroots, and I see an ad for a CRX for two thousand dollars built race car oh my god two grand what year what year it was an 88 okay so crx hf okay and the hf was the one that famously got 52 miles Miles to to the the gallon gallon. yeah because it only made i think it made 72 horsepower at the crank yeah and it weighed like something stupid like 19 or 1800 pounds or something I weighed like. mine without me in it. I weighed mine at 17. Jesus. I think it weighed. Yeah, let's put an H22 in it. Let's go. Uh, <laughs> no, no, believe me. That, that thing still had the HF in it. It still had the stock motor in it. And the, you know, the header came out and it, it looked like four straws. It looked like four drinking straws <laughs> coming out the side of the block. This, this itty bitty little header. Um, and that was my my first race car. So, okay, you know, great. I got bought buy it over the winter. Um, ended up falling into a ridiculously good deal with mm-hmm. a guy named Dave Davis. He owned Davis Acura. I knew him through the NSX club. He was actually pretty much the only racer I knew at the time. He had a um, a second gen Integra with an H22 that he used to race. Uh, sorry. Sorry about that. My battery was uh, dying. So we were talking about Skip oh. Barber. Yeah. yeah. So the, the CRX. So yes. um, I reached out to this guy, Dave Davis. And like I said, he, he owned Davis Acura. Oh. Um, a, a big Acura dealership in, in the Philly area. And I, I messaged him just to be like, hey, like, guess what? Like, I bought a race car now, too. Like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be seeing you out there on the track. And that was the extent of the message I sent him. He replies back to me and says, well, would you be interested in a sponsorship deal? <laughs> what? He said, if you put if you put Davis Acura on the side of your car, 
Um, I'll give you a hundred dollars for every race win. I'll give you, he's like, you can get parts from me at cost. Um, you can use my body shop and, and he's like, I'll repaint your car and we can redo the graphics on it for free. If you want it to match my car, <laughs> oh, shit. um, and, and comes back with this, this whole offer. I mean, I never asked for anything <laughs> That's wild. and I had never raced a car in my life, but sure enough, I'm like, Obviously, yes. Yes. <laughs> so bring the car to him, get it completely repainted. It still is the same turd of a car underneath. <laughs> but this thing was so dead slow. <laughs> but okay, all ready for it. I end up, okay, first race of the season's down at VIR. Great. Mm-hmm. And, and somewhere along the line, it should have occurred to me, okay. I'm going down to this track I've never been to before. Mm -hmm. No one had been to. VIR had literally reopened that year. It had been closed for like 20 years. Wow. So it reopened that year. Nobody had experience on this track. I had never done any wheel-to-wheel because I got my competition license through Skip Barber. And I had never driven this car on a racetrack before. Wait, you've... You've not done any. Oh my god! No, I never did a track what? day with it. I bought it over the winter. Oh we my fixed god! Fixed it up. First event of the year was a race, so I'm going racing. Oh, I'm, I'm literally. This is like the perfect <laughs> storm of of racing chaos. That's wild. So, and not only that, but um, to get down there, I I was dating this girl. Her dad had a Pontiac Bonneville. Like that, that like supercharged Pontiac Bonneville. You did not tow with the Bonneville. Well, could that tow the car down there? Used to tow Dolly. So her dad says to us, he's like, "I'll tell you what." He goes, "If you want to put a tow Dolly on it, he goes, you can use my car to take it down there. If I get to keep the tow, if I get to keep the the tow hook, the the trailer, whatever you want to call it." Um. So we're like, fine. I bought a. I went to U-Haul and bought the the hitch. That's the word I couldn't think of. Yeah, the yeah, the hitch. hitch. And I'm like, it'll take me an hour to put it on the car, and then we'll head down there. Seven hours later, I finally got this hitch onto <laughs> the back of this Pontiac. So it's it's an eight hour drive to VIR from my house. By the time I got down there, it was four in the morning. I had to be up at six to get to the track. <laughs> So I'm going on two hours sleep. Oh, my God. And we get there to the track. And it was so funny because we, we go out for the first practice session mm-hmm. in the car. And VIR is is famous for Oak Tree Turn, was referred mm-hmm. to as Oak Tree. Yeah. Well, an Oak Tree is a tighter turn than it looks like mm-hmm. when, when you get into it. Oak Tree's pretty – I mean, it was like a third gear turn. Okay. Um, and we went around behind the pace car. We go out for the first lap. And like I said, nobody there had ever driven this track before. And we come around, take the green flag. We all start going and we're all kind of finding our way. I come around coming up to Oak Tree. And when I tell you, like somebody pulled a muscle or or threw their shoulder out waving this yellow flag, because this yellow flag was not just waving. This yellow flag was was frantic, like full seizure mode. Like just flying, I come around Oak Tree, and at the time, the you know the tree is gone now, but the tree used to be there, and it kind of partially obstructed your view. Mm-hmm. And I come around Oak Tree, 
and there is six cars off track left. Oh my god. Six people blew that turn and just ended up off track. Oh left. my god. So we come around, we qualify. Now there's only three cars in my class. Mm-hmm. All right. And this this is all this is gonna give you a lot of, of flashback stuff. So it's my CRX, a Nissan Pulsar. Okay. And a Volkswagen Scirocco. Wow. The original Scirocco with the round wow. headlights. Those were the three cars in the class. We we later found out that that Pulsar was actually um, in the wrong class. He was oh. actually an ITA car, not an ITC car. Okay, okay. Um, so he was way faster than we were for mm-hmm. obvious reasons. He was in the wrong class. Mm-hmm. So we go out for qualifying. And again, I've never driven this car before. I'd never done wheel to wheel. So we go out and I, I actually qualified at second out of three. <laughs> second of three. So you beat the Scirocco. I beat the Scirocco by one grid spot and the, the Pulsar was like eight spots ahead of me. Yeah. So we go around to start the race, take the green flag and we're coming down. I'm like, okay, I'm racing. I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but I'm racing. We come through. You know, term one, we come back and yellow flags are flying. I'm like, okay, what's going on? We get to the left-hander and I look up and I can see, oh, there's a car in the tire wall. Okay. And I glance over and I'm like, oh, am I allowed to curse on this? You're fine. You're fine. Okay. I'm like, oh, shit. It's the Pulsar. <gasps> oh, snap the pole. Pulsar's in the wall. And I'm like, oh, my God. So now I'm going past and we're under yellow at this point. And in my brain, I'm thinking, okay, he's going to come out. He's going to rejoin. Mm-hmm. How much of a of a buffer can I get to try to keep this pulsar oh, from that's catching right. up and coming past me? Mm-hmm. We do an entire lap, come around again, still behind the pace car, and they're lifting him onto a flatbed. Oh, I'm like, pulsar's out. Pulsar's okay. out. It's me and the Scirocco. And we come around, everything goes green again, and I'm battling it out. And that damn CRX... The back of that car is glass. Mm -hmm. And you don't know how annoying that is as a driver when you're trying to concentrate on what's in front of you. And all I can see is this stupid Volkswagen emblem (laughs) right in the glass. I mean, he was, you couldn't fit a cat in between our two cars. So he's doing the the BMW uh, following you in traffic. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, he was on my ass, but he couldn't get past me. Mm -hmm. And we're driving around. It's just lap after lap. I have got absolutely no road racing skills whatsoever. I, I probably in retrospect, I probably did some illegal things like blocking him. I don't know. Mm -hmm. The whole thing was a blur to me. I had two hours (laughs) of sleep, but I'm, I'm still driving this thing and we're coming around and the race is going on and and you start, you know, you get that feeling like we're probably getting near the end. And he decides to take a run on me through the turns called hog pen. It's the turn that leads onto the front straight. And it's this great term where you, you, it's got a dive, um, you know, in terms of, of, um, altitude, you know, you're, you're Mm -hmm. dropping down and then it bends hard to the right with some camber on it. Mm -hmm. And I'm watching my mirror and I see him start hanging back because he's going to take a run on me through Mm -hmm. Hogpen. And 
I just I take it as hard as I can, come out of hog pen, and I glance up in my rearview mirror, and I'm looking at his driver's door. And I'm like, what? And I glance up again, and I see his taillights. And I look up, and I glance up again, and I see his passenger door. And he spun it. He spun Whoa. it off the track. And as I'm coming down, as right as he spun, I come down the front straight, and the white flag's out. Oh, it's over. And I'm like, all I've got to do is not screw this up. <laughs> and I think I think I was something like seven or eight seconds slower on that last lap because You're like, like, don't miss just, just easing through every turn. And sure enough, come around and took the checker, and I, I actually won my first ever wheel-to-wheel race. And got a hundred dollars. Got a hundred dollars from my sponsor. You were going to the um, Sizzler that night. <laughs> and and came through and uh yeah and Cabeto when he you know he he was doing the announcements for the the mm-hmm. race winners and stuff announced that I had won in my first ever race mm-hmm. and the whole crowd's cheering for That's me and it, it it was this great sense of community mm-hmm. um and then the the season went on um things were going great I, I won a few races we, we got the Pulsar class out of the class. Um, and then we had a race that we were the, um, what do you call it? The, the preview race for, was at the time Motorola cup. Okay. And then it became continental and then it became it, but it's, it's that same series that's still around Mm. today, but they big turnout for that race because it was this big race weekend. Mm -hmm. Everybody was, NASA only had one race group. Mm-hmm. So every car that was out there on the grid was all in the same race group, including my 72 horsepower CRX. <laughs> so when I say, you know, I qualified, I probably about 47th, 48th on the grid okay. um, out of like 52 race cars. And the only reason mm-hmm. I didn't qualify further down was there was like two people who didn't make it out for qualifying <laughs> and they ended up behind me. Um, so we come around, you know, we get the green and it's a standing start race. Mm-hmm. I'm taking my standing start in hog pen. I'm lit. I'm not even on the front straight. Wow. And it's like a mile long front straight and I'm not even on it. So it's one of those ones. You can't even see the flag. You just mm-hmm. hear the other cars start going. So you put your foot down. Mm-hmm. So I'm accelerating up through coming up through the traffic. There's two cars ahead of me. I st- it was a 240SX and a Neon. Oh, bad. Neon race car. And, you know, I'm not I'm not a hugely tall guy. I'm 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 I say 5'8. The doctor okay. says 5'7. It's okay. a disagreement. Okay. Um but a CRX, I mean, it's a fairly low car. Mm-hmm. So I'm down pretty low in this CRX, and I'm just staring at the back of this 240SX and this neon mm-hmm. duking it out right in front of me. And all of a sudden, right as we get up to the start-finish line, they just split to either side. And I'm looking at the back of a parked E30 M3. No! Stalled on the standing start. Um, couldn't get the car started. I'm going probably about 75, oh 80. God. And there was just, there was nowhere to go. There was nothing to do. I jump for the brakes, um, but you know, if I slowed it down from eighty to seventy, I was lucky. Wow! The thing that kept it from being a much worse accident than it should have been 
the guy in the M3 was smart enough that he, when he couldn't get the car started, when he was sitting there on the grid, he just kept his foot down on the clutch. Oh, because so there's no resistance. If anybody was going to hit him, he didn't want resistance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when I hit him, and I still, this, this was 2000 this happened, so we're talking 23 years ago, I still have the picture in my brain of that M3 literally in the air because, you know, my my CRX had nosed down because I hit the brakes. Yeah, that's right. I punched into the back of him so hard, I actually sent that car into the air. Wow. And then the one car that was still behind me was a Factory 5 Cobra that the guy Uh, had just bought. Oh, no. It was his first race. Oh, no. And he went to the organizers and said, look, I don't want to mess up my car. Let me start dead last. Oh, just dear so God. I can avoid any of the chaos involved with the start. He went into the back of me and caught the rear right of my car, which, I mean, my rear right wheel ended up at a 45 degree. I had 45 degrees of toe in this Jesus thing. Jesus Christ. And, and the reason what, what cued me to go into this entire story, because we were talking about people driving yeah. their cars to the racetrack. Yeah. I was dry. I drove that car to the racetrack. I didn't have a tow vehicle. Yeah. The way I ended up getting it home, I went into town to, there was a U-Haul dealer there Mm -hmm. and I tried to get a truck and a trailer and I couldn't, they didn't have them. Mm -hmm. So I said, fine. What's the biggest truck you have? (laughs) (laughs) They give me this huge box truck. I drive it back to VIR. You did not box truck. We lifted up what was left of my CRX <laughs> on the back of a flatbed. Now, of course, it wouldn't roll because I had 45 degrees of toe in the rear wheel. Jesus Christ. And the whole front end smashed in. So we lifted it up on floor jacks, front and rear, <laughs> with people on the corners just like guiding it, keeping it balanced, and rolled it from the flatbed into the back of this truck. And I drove what was left of my CRX home inside of a U-Haul. That's gangster shit. That's gangster shit. So, I don't care what you say. That's and what dope. was funny was for years after that, um, what NASA Mid-Atlantic would do is every time they would do a standing start race, they had flaggers that they would have all along the start straight mm-hmm. with yellow flags at their side. And they'd be set up like every other line in the grid. And your job was if a car in your line stalls or can't get started on the standing start, throw your flag and everybody downstream of you will throw their flags. Mm -hmm. So it warns cars at the back of the pack that -hmm. you're coming up on somebody who's sitting on the grid. Oh, to try to prevent what happened to me. Mm-hmm. And they actually called them Bookler Flaggers. <laughs> you know, Khan had reached out to me when I told them who I was going to have on there and literally told me, hey, ask Bookler about Bookler Flaggers. And we already did it unprompted. That, that is. Was- that was my legacy. I, <laughs> and you'd, you'd be at like a NASA race and you'd hear 
All right, we need Bookler flaggers for the race coming up. Anybody who wants to be a Bookler flagger, come on up to the tower. Uh, um, yeah. That, so, was, that was my thing. So obviously that's a deviation from the start of Honda Challenge. Um, but yeah, still, let's go back. awesome story. That is so dope. Um, I think I've seen like um, memes of people uh, bringing race cars in the back of a U-Haul truck, like with CRXs <laughs> or something. So uh, I'm going to try and find that video or something and tag it in in, in this uh, podcast uh, thumbnail. But <clears throat> of course, we've mentioned two two other people that helped you start and. Obviously, um, you know, when I reached out to you about the story of how Honda Challenge got started, you wanted to first make sure that you talked to Scott Giles and um, forget yeah, Schultz um, to make sure that they were okay with it. Because, you know, um, you correctly uh, pointed out that if you were to divide out how Honda Challenge started out with the in terms of like the effort and the work that went in there, um, I think you pointed out that it was something like 40, 40 and 20 on your part of like how, how much effort was put in there. So, um, yeah, what I would say, I, I mean, even just to, to correct the wording, you said that, you know, they supported me in starting Honda Challenge. It, oh, it was sorry. quite the opposite. I supported them. Um, Scott and Carl, I cannot say this enough, deserve all of the credit for the founding of Honda Challenge. Where I came into play was Scott and Carl both at the time had no race experience. Mm -hmm. They were both instructors who wanted to become mm -hmm. racers. Um, and they recognized that there was a fundamental flaw of having two people running a mm -hmm. race series when none, none of them had ever raced before. Mm -hmm. So they asked me to join as the third member of the board mm -hmm. because I was a quote-unquote experienced racer at that time. Mm -hmm. Or at very so, least more experienced than them. Yeah, I mean, I, I only had, you know, two years of experience, which including, you know, a season that was cut short thanks to a colossal wreck. Um <laughs> And, you know, I, I built a new CRX for that following season. So mm -hmm. I, I raced it in 2001 as well. Um, but they did the bulk of the work. Um, and and I always, anytime I'm talking about the founding of Honda Challenge, mm -hmm. you know, I, in the NASA circles, I tend to get the attention because I'm the one who's still around. Um, mm. And I, I say that they're not dead, just to make sure we're clear. Yeah. Um, Scott and Carl are not involved with NASA any longer. Mm -hmm. um, but I always make sure to make it a point that I'm not taking credit for the work that they did. Absolutely. And, and maybe even saying that it was 40, 40, 20 might be being generous to me. Maybe mm. it was more 45, 45, 10. Or, mm -hmm. But they, they really did the vast majority of the work that became Honda Challenge. Yeah, and I think this is, um, again, obviously we're having this conversation and it's not just because, Oh, I wanted to have you particularly <clears throat> on there, but because they didn't feel uh, comfortable coming on and talking. And, you know, look, I think listeners to the podcast already know where I'm probably going with this. This is not a podcast that's going to cheerlead a specific organizations. Um, 
you know group just because i i like the people that run in there if there's anything that we can learn is that if there's mistakes that are done in the past uh, we should learn from them and figure out how not to repeat them because just like something can be created it can be destroyed and i think that it would be fair to kind of bring up at least right now why those two individuals scott and um i'm horrible with names if i if i knew what cars they drove i would be like way better on that i only know scott giles so much uh more because he's friends with adam and i hear his name uh being brought up a lot but um yeah i i think it would be it, it wouldn't do justice to go ahead and um talk about the creation without talking about why those individuals are no longer involved. So I'll be, again, I'm going to be careful with my wording Mm -hmm. here because I I don't want to list something as the definitive reason why they're not involved. I'll tell you the circumstances of what happened. Mm -hmm. um, And the end conclusion was they ended up not being involved. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I want to make sure that I'm not putting motive my in my words putting motivations and assigning Mm -hmm. them to other people um but here's what i will say you know as we talked about in order to get honda challenge off the ground we had to to have over 20 cars per event Mm -hmm. and we actually accomplished that um our first event which was at uh carolina motorsports park i believe we had 23 cars on the grid that's awesome. And think about, you know, for a series that's just starting out, brand mm-hmm. new series, we had 23 cars show up for our race. And they all passed NASA Tech. They all passed Correct. all of those requirements. Correct. They had a NASA race license. That's a huge Correct. feat. Like, let, let's be frank yeah. and honest. Right now, it's really hard to say in any regional champ, uh, Honda Challenge race where you could have... 20 cars show up that's that's a huge feat so and the reason why i'm bringing that up is because the the point i'm trying to make is that what we built that first year was enormously successful Mm -hmm. i think by by any subjective measure Mm -hmm. that was a very successful outcome absolutely um and we we were able to maintain that throughout the season. We we had the those kind of turnouts every every event, despite the fact that H one cars were just breaking left and right. <laughs> we still were getting people coming out for these events. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get to the end of the year, and NASA National took notice of what we had accomplished, mm-hmm. and immediately decided to make it a national class. So, you know, we, we were thrilled, you know, for us, that was, that was success. I mean, it's vindication that you've not only created something, but, you know, and at that time we're talking about 2001 was the post. So yeah, coming in that era, I mean, Hondas were hot in terms of like where, where they were in the culture and, you know, Everybody knows people that have drag race cars and are out there spending a lot of money to run, you know, maybe a minute in total track time. So they they saw a possible market there. But so here's here's where where things get a little dodgy. 
Mm-hmm. So then again, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna state some facts. Mm-hmm. I I have my opinions in terms of what caused what to happen, mm-hmm. but I, I I'll be careful how I phrase things. Um, so NASA at that time had tried to create a new race series to compete with um, the World Challenge. Mm. I, I think at the time it was Speed Cup or cause it was on, it was on speed TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was, but speed cup was SCCA. Mm-hmm. So NASA wanted their equivalent of a speed cup series, a professional race series mm-hmm. running through NASA. It was called the U S touring car championship, USTCC. Yep. And again, you know, a pro championship the cars are built very differently Mm -hmm. than than what you normally would see for for your club racing that series was not successful Mm -hmm. and it left a lot of people over on the west coast with cars that were built for this series including a lot of hondas Mm -hmm. that had no place to race Mm -hmm. because they were built to a rule book and it didn't work Mm -hmm. so in my opinion when NASA decided to take Honda challenge national, Mm -hmm. their intention was to change the rule book in such a way that it allowed those U S touring car race cars Mm -hmm. to have a place to race. So they took our rule book and immediately started making major changes to it. Mm -hmm. Most of which were the rules that we had in place about, maintaining the the cost keeping costs under control Mm -hmm. the whole no lexan that went out the window the Mm -hmm. whole no carbon fiber that went out the window Mm -hmm. um a a whole bunch of of things that we had put in place to try to keep stuff reasonably priced Mm -hmm. they wanted nothing to do with now to us what was said was basically uh you know Hey, you guys did a super job, but now let the adults, you know, do this. And they flat out told us that our rule book was naive and it wouldn't work mm-hmm. in a real race series. And since they were taking it national, they had to fix our mistakes. And, you know, from our perspective, it sure didn't look like we made a whole bunch of mistakes. We had we had 20 some cars showing up for every mm-hmm. single event. Mm-hmm. We had a fantastic first season and and now all of a sudden the the voice was, you know, well, you, you made a lot of mistakes. We're going to fix them for you so that this can actually work. But as I said, in my opinion, I think the true motivation was we need to find a place for these U.S. touring cars and we're going to change your rule book so we can get them in. Mm. They I- also immediately throughout our 1313 rule, which very much was the heart Mm -hmm. of of the founding of of Honda Challenge in the first place, was that we didn't want it to be a smash them up, bang them up kind of a series. Mm -hmm. We wanted it to be gentlemen's racing because we wanted to protect our cars. Um, That was immediately discarded. Mm -hmm. Now, as it turns out, given the changes that they made to the rule book, I don't know if we would have been able to maintain 20 cars per event any longer. So I don't know if we would have been able to keep our own run group anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but all of those th- those were the the changes that took place. Mm-hmm. Scott and Carl both left NASA um, mm-hmm. as as a result of that. The fact that I stayed, I, I think, also probably speaks to the fact that they were so much more involved than I was yeah. that I I was willing to stick around. I also felt like I had such a an established relationship with Chris Cabello mm-hmm. in the NASA Mid-Atlantic. I was willing to look past what NASA National had done mm. in order to stay racing mm. with Chris Cabello and um, the, the Mid-Atlantic crew. And then a short time later... Joe Casella, my first instructor, hmm. um, he took over NASA Northeast, mm-hmm. or he started NASA Northeast, and that gave me again, you know, another place to race with NASA. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, again, where we can, um, I, I think, very much um, correlate, or rather, not necessarily like agree, but where we have a lot of. Uh, overlap is that yeah you know i have built really good relationships with a lot of honda challenge racers and i love uh the series and i love hondas so i continue to support it despite what's going on here in socal because you understand that there's like franchises there now had i been more like scott giles and helping build something and then it seen it being changed in a way that I wasn't even um, brought in or talked to or whatever, uh, I probably would feel completely different uh, in that sense. So, I mean, I think the the thing that you're alluding to and thing that, you know, we've uh, talked uh, a little bit about is that you need to have a community to support the racing series because at the end of the day like there's plenty of series out there that are horsepower to weight ratio that you could eventually jump into but it's the community that's going to bring you back there and if you do something to a community that's barely starting and showing a lot of promise it's it's shooting yourself in the foot and you know we of course have a 2020 hindsight to go ahead and quarterback and say all these things but you know it it's an unfortunate event um uh, but it is part of the history of how Honda Challenge got started and how it is what it is now and you know if i was to mention that i've had people here in socal talk about you know i'd i'd love to race Honda Challenge but i don't want my thing to get wrecked and it's not one person that said that it's not two it's not three it's been multiples. And I look at, you know, the low car counts that we've had, where it's like, you know, four, maybe three, maybe six cars. Is that something that could be a, a factor in keeping the series from growing? Possibly. Who knows? Because there's so many other barriers of entry to get in there. But I think if you have a consistent a community that's promoting it and having the people that started it off stay in it, it it helps build on it. And, you know, you get people that um, essentially promote the series to other people who are interested in it. And I think, in my personal opinion, 
that's what brings uh, more racers in. It's not necessarily what the ad campaign is. It's knowing that, oh, you know, Bookler races here. I know him. He's a good guy. And he's told me about, like, you know, stories of, like, Kevin Helms helping him uh, switch out a clutch uh, when he didn't know how to work on cars. Like, those things are the best PR you can do to bring people in. And it's those stories that I think if you don't learn from, uh, you know, making a series something that people want to go to, you're, you're, you're really hurting the series in terms of growth and uh, opportunity to bring more people and more talented in, individuals into it. It You know, there's no way of knowing... Mm-hmm. what would have happened to the series if if the rules weren't changed etc mm-hmm. um you know it, it, it's easy for me to sit here and say that you know the numbers that we had that first season we would have been able to replicate year after year yeah. maybe grown it further and i i look at some series like specy 30 or mm-hmm. or spec miata that that will turn out 20 cars per yeah. event etc and Honda Challenge really has been cut down now to really just two classes, H2 and H4. H4, for a, a period of time, H4 in the Northeast kind of had a resurgence, mm-hmm. um, but that appears to have died down now. Um, H2, you know, average event will have probably between six and eight cars, something yeah. like that. Uh, H1, they, they've been unable to sustain the kind of numbers mm-hmm. that – um, we actually have two very strong H1 competitors in the Northeast, mm-hmm. um, Jose in his S2000 mm-hmm. and, uh, Jackie Andrews has a, a H1 Civic. Yeah. Um, but they've been running ST3 because they're, you know, they're, they're both competitive enough people mm-hmm. that they don't want to be in a class where they're the only car running or, or yeah. one of two cars. They want to be in a field where, you know, they've got 10 cars mm-hmm. all battling it out. Yeah. So you, you see a lot of that. Um, and I myself fell fell victim to that. I, you know, I had an H1 car and we had a, you know, a situation going where we had signed for our region, our, for, I guess it was mid-Atlantic region, actually got a tire deal in place mm-hmm. um a really good deal with if i remember correctly it was hankook mm-hmm. or i'm sorry no no it was kumo we had mm-hmm. a, a deal with kumo that would have actually paid cash out to racers wow. if you if you win on their tires mm-hmm. and all of a sudden nasa national announced this deal that toyo oh. all race cars have to be on toyo and we actually we had to walk away from this deal that we had signed um, oh. with with Kumo that was a much better deal than what was going on at the national level. Mm-hmm. But for me, I was running on 16 inch wheels on yeah. my Civic. I, at that point, I had a um, an H1 Civic with a B18 C5 in it, and I couldn't clear my brakes with a with 15 inch wheels. Yeah, so I. And the 16-inch tires, uh, the 16-inch wheels, the Toyo tires were just terrible sizes. Mm-hmm. So if I had switched over, it was a difference of, it was uh, like a 
seven percent increase in rolling circumference oh no so that so just kills your gearing com- it completely screwed up the gearing my car was would literally sit like two inches off the ground higher than it was before mm. um so your center of gravity's off your gearing's off everything's off and or i would have to go out and buy three sets of 17 inch wheels so I, I myself left Honda Challenge at that point, and I switched over to the power-to-weight classes, mm-hmm. um, and that's what I ran in until 2013 uh, is when I stopped racing wheel-to-wheel, and mm-hmm. I've been instructing since then. Um, but I, I've stayed very close with Honda Challenge. Every mm-hmm. event, I'm, I'm hanging out over in the, the Honda Challenge paddock. I'm, I'm still driving a, a mm-hmm. K24-powered C- uh, Civic. Awesome. That a lot of people would very much like to see an H1 because um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm I turn times with it that are pretty close. I'm not quite as fast as Jackie and and Jose Suero are, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm I'm less than a second usually off their pace. Okay, that's um, still quick in the, in the DE groups. Yeah. So a lot of people would like to see me go <laughs> back in in H1 again, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't think that's in the in the cards, cards for me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think Jackie's actually running a ST4, if I remember correctly, because I do remember her. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you're absolutely right. In terms of H1, the only uh, region that's been, um, it that I've seen uh, have success with it is Southeast uh, with uh, Boston uh, Mailer. He usually posts up that they have like about four or five S2000s that are running. Um, Mm. in h1 so i i've been again surprised about that because really it looks like h2 is kind of where it's going to be at um based off of the k series engines that are going to be usable for it and um the cost of them uh the k20 a3 and the k24 the one that came in the crv and the cord are the like new standards for for the h4 it looks like i think right yeah. now the hot setup is still like the gsr with um with a dc2 or eg um setup or ek um it seems to be uh, kind of the hot ticket it might be track dependent but realistically h2 is northeast and mid-atlantic um southeast they have some cars there um but socal like it's still h4 and i think next year they're going to be uh trying to move up into h2 from what i've heard but aside from that there's like maybe five five or six drivers currently running in honda challenge for uh socal so i mean to swap over the car and then be ready for nationals to compete against baker currently I just don't see it in the cards uh, for the SoCal group. Um, I do know that there is one fast driver that's coming back to Honda Challenge in H4. So that's probably going to make things a little bit more difficult to make a full transition over. Because I know Edo Stepanian is coming back. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Um, No. But he's kind of like one of our local fast guys. Him and Jeremy Crosset would always be nose to tail and fighting it out. Um, So, yeah, like, Edo's fast, and he's finally coming back after a back injury. And I think 
in uh, NorCal, we have uh, an ST5 car. This Alex, Alex from Wolf Rain, uh, or Wolf Rain uh, Motorsports. And that's it. Like, that's not, I'm sorry, like, that's not. Yeah. Yeah. You, you look at the, the builds that are currently going on right now in terms of classes that are growing is Specky 46, Specky 30 is still pretty strong, and then Spec Miata. Those are, like, the three that you can bet your money that there's going to be people in. And, and part of it, too, I mean, if we're being fair, if we're, you know, looking at, at where the limitations lie, I mean, mm-hmm. the newer Hondas don't lend themselves as well to to being converted into race cars for the most part, mm-hmm. um, or certainly not at the price point that a lot of people are, are willing to go to. I know, you know, the new Civic Type R, obviously, mm-hmm. Um, they, they had the special program with the body in white mm-hmm. that, that you could buy. Um, but you know, Honda has not been great about supporting in terms of, you know, part availability and engine yeah. availability, et cetera, yeah. um, that some other manufacturers have been better at. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the more that becomes an issue, finding yeah. a good chassis, finding the parts for the motors you know, we've actually reached an inflection point where we created some of the rules by saying you have to use Honda parts in your engine. Mm-hmm. It's actually more expensive now yeah. to get the Honda parts for your engine than it is to get some of the aftermarket parts. Yeah. And the rule that we created to try to save people money is actually costing people money. Yeah, exactly. And there's been modifications um, to those rules. Um, again, there's rules requests because of that. That's why you're allowed, I think, in um, H4, you're allowed um, different um, final drives and uh, gear sets as long as they're kind of like the same as the OEM. And yeah, it's, you know, but those are things that can be addressed through rule changes. And it's something that's not giving a unique advantage to one competitor is more or less com helping uh competition stay uh relevant and yeah there there are limitations but um i think the the biggest issue currently is that we all know that golden era hondas if you build them a certain way you have the suspension setup that everybody knows that kind of works for them they handle amazingly and if you just have a reliable power plant in it be it a K series or whatever, um, it it can be incredibly fast and incredibly competitive. And the issue that you're pointing out is that you know Honda doesn't support uh, the golden era cars because they're now ticking into thirty years old. And how yeah. many manufacturers can you think of that actually sell parts for a car that are thirty years old? And it's not making an excuse for them because obviously Mazda's doing it. I know Nissan is uh, bringing back uh, parts manufacturing for the R32. Um, so, like, there there is a market there, but if you can't get these companies to be interested enough, and with our low car counts as well, um, yeah. it's it's not going to be a big jump for them. So... And especially since they want to move their new cars. Because their new cars, I think, are pretty dope. Um, I wish 
you know, they were lighter because, <laughs> again, we're talking about 3,000-something-pound vehicles. We need to go with some big tires. And, you know, I, I still want to... They're sleds. Yeah. And I still want to rock my 15s, man. Like, I'm dumb. I, I'm running D-Series. If you want to talk about stuff that there's nothing of, there's still... I, I, I'm running D-Series, and now D-Series are, like, B-Series prices where it's, like, people want to sell you a clean running d series for like a thousand dollars and you're like what people used to give these away well don't don't diss on the 15s um jackie and i both tried going to 17s on our our k24 powered cars Mm -hmm. um because they're they're pretty similar i mean he she's got the um eg i've got the ej but it's it's the same Yeah, yeah um and she and i both had the same result where i was two seconds a lap slower Mm. on the 17s um i did not change my final drive she did so i think i think her times were were a little bit closer together Mm. than mine were um but without changing the final drive on it um it it just it the unsprung weight of the 17s was Mm. just too much to overcome um and could not get the same lap time so i'm still on 15s too yeah, I, I love 15s. I, I mean, I don't know. It just looks period correct um, for for those chassis. The, something about like an EG with like 15s uh, on there, it, it just looks right to me. Yeah, I, I agree. I with, with the 17s on it, I thought my car looked a little silly. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit too 4x4-ish. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, on the plus side, I was not bottoming out my splitter. There, there you go. That is a that is a plus side. But if you're still like four by four status, it just doesn't. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't yeah. work well. So we were talking about like different questions to be asked, and obviously, since you've mentioned um, doing tow dollies out there, um, trying to get to the racetrack by driving your race car out out to the racetrack, I wonder what is your favorite fast food uh, meal to go to? Like, did you ever go with uh, with your race car to get, like, I don't know, McDonald's or, or what? I, I have on several occasions on the way to or from the track stopped at a McDonald's. Mm-hmm. I'm going to I'm gonna be a little controversial with this answer. I love um, it. I like the filet of fish Yes. Okay. So here's the thing. I I like the filet of fish too. I don't think it's bad, and it's not just it, because I'm Catholic and uh, I I have some deep seated guilt or, or familiarity for Lent to get the filet of fish. I I like the filet of fish. It's good. I mean, it, like I understand it's trash. Like it is hot trash. It, and it's fish and cheese. Yes. Like, you should not combine <laughs> fish and cheese. You shouldn't. And it's not just any cheese. It is the Kraft Singles. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, is, it is trash food, and I love it. I love, I, I do love that. All right. Who has the best fries, then? Ooh. Um... I'm gonna say the Chick-fil-A waffle fries. Mm, all right. I I still, for me, number one fries that I've been able to get is Five Guys Cajun fries. Like to me, Five mm. Guys Cajun fries, I'm just like league of their own. They always give you a lot. You're always uh fully satiated. 
And then I'd probably go with uh, the Wendy's um, sea salt fries. I really liked those when they first came out with the natural cut. So. I have to confess that that I don't do a lot of fast food, so mm-hmm. I'm I'm probably not like the the best one to ask <laughs> on this. But I will say I I don't know how much um how, how many franchises there are of of Iron Hill Brewing Company, oh. but they've got a sweet potato fry with like a oh. vanilla dipping sauce. Oh, that is, and it's oh. like a big steak fry. It's oh, like not like a man. little thin one. It's like these big big steak fries sweet potato Mm -hmm. vanilla sauce it's divine looks like i have and that's because you you said you're kind of in the virginia area uh philly philly you're you're in philly now okay because uh cabello and uh, mid-atlantic they they're kind of more in the virginia area so i don't know if you if you've moved since you started um so i will be going to hyperfest for next year so that is definitely a spot i'm gonna have to try and find hopefully they're in virginia because that'd be sick i've never heard of them before uh here in like the west coast so you know interesting thing hyperfest was originally developed it was it was cabeto yeah um and it was developed to um boost Honda Challenge, like Honda Challenge was mm. the feature mm-hmm. of Hyperfest. And, you know, it's it's funny, in the early days, we actually tried to do some, let's call it like glam publicity type stuff <laughs> to, to make it look a lot more glamorous than it actually was. But I remember it was the, the year that we kicked off um, Honda challenge. There was a event on Valentine's day weekend at VIR, hmm. which is always a risky proposition because mm-hmm. Virginia is not immune to snow. Oh, in, that's right. In February. And we did amongst other things, we did a photo shoot mm-hmm. and they hired six models mm-hmm. to come down and they had the, the guys who were going to be racing in Honda Challenge that year. They had us pull our cars up to the grid. Mm-hmm. And the drivers would be like pose with the car. And the six girls would come out and like you'd have three on each side. Mm-hmm. And we'd take our, our glam shots with our cars. And it was probably when we were doing this, it was probably about like 25 degrees out that day. <laughs> And these these poor girls were. Oh no! I mean, they were they were dressed to be models. They were yeah, not yeah, dressed yeah. to be oh, standing boy. out in in twenty some degree. So they had a big Chevy Suburban, and they would run. They, they would the all heater the Suburban with the heat on full blast, and then just they, run out, run back out. Yep, you get the car <laughs> in place. The driver would come out, and they'd be like, boom. The doors would fly open. The six girls would run out, come up, pose, do you know, do their pretty pose, whatever, take the picture, and then they'd run and jump back into the car again. <laughs> That's so messed up. And yeah, I would love some, to find some of those pictures if you still have those. Those would be I awesome. Do, I do somewhere. I was actually looking for it uh, <laughs> earlier today. I have the picture of me standing in front of my blue CRX <laughs> with the six girls around me. That's so ridiculous. Oh man, that's so funny. 
poor girls, it's so cold. Oh man. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh. It was. It was not. Uh, it did not work out exactly the way that we had anticipated. Let's say, put it that way. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, man, you know, I, I feel, and this is uh, one of the things that I've always tried to do with the podcast is to make it like a conversation you would be having with someone out on the track. And I feel like we could go on for another hour at least. Um, but yeah, we're already at an hour and a half. So for the sake of the people that, uh, do listen to this, that want to get to an end, I think we'll, we'll stop it there, but I am definitely going to get you back on. We have so much more stuff to, go, uh, to go through. Um, but aside from that, you know, I, I still feel like we, I want to pay respect to Scott Giles and, um, God, I am, we need to find out what car he drives. Starts with a K. Uh, Cruz, uh, Cruz? Carl. Carl? Schultz. Schultz. There we go. Carl Schultz. There we go. Jesus. Apologies to Mr. Schultz. Uh, I don't know if he listens to podcasts. Uh, I, I know there's some people who don't. He, there, there's a good chance he might listen to this one. Yeah, so. There's a possibility. They might uh, just give him a timestamp or something. But yeah, you know, you, you got to give uh, credit for the people that created, um, you know, an awesome series. And, you know, we, I, I think you were more than uh, fair in describing, you know, whether or not something could be... Um, the the thirteen thirteen rule um could have been uh something to create more people into Honda Challenge or not um but I think the fact that they are not part of the Honda Challenge uh community I think it's a it's a big loss and then not having those people continue on is is definitely something that um would need to be addressed with the uh, conversation of how Honda Challenge started. So hopefully we, we did a good job of uh, representing um, how much they gave and um, how much passion they had to start this whole series. What I'll say, I, I mean, on, on behalf of, you know, Carl and Scott are two great guys mm-hmm. um, who I, I have the utmost respect for. Mm-hmm. And, and they put in a ton of work mm-hmm. to make Honda Challenge work. And, um, you know, they, they were really, in my opinion, they were disrespected and and treated really poorly. And it's a loss. It's a loss to the community that they, you know, were, were put in a position where, where they felt obligated to leave. Yeah. That's not, um, where, you know, it, it, I, I wish they could, be a bit of more of a part of the success that Honda challenge has had over the years. Mm-hmm. Cause it has, I mean, the fact that it's still going yeah. 22 years later is, you know, uh, speaks a lot to the fact that the basic concept was, was solid. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of what could have been that, that I yeah. think still hang out there. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, look in SoCal, um, there's no American iron series and, you know, you can say, hey, this is the U.S. How can you not find Mustangs and Camaros and stuff like that to go ahead and race? And we have literally like Eibach, Edelbrock. You can go anywhere in SoCal and find a drag race um, uh, tuner or whatever that works on all of those engines uh, from 
from that era. I mean, LS engines, uh, Fox body engines, all of those engines, like, and that series is not, not there anymore. And, you know, these things can go away. And the fact that Honda Challenge has remained has shown that yeah. at least the community around them and, you know, has, has had some sort of effect on it. So, yeah. Uh, you're breaking your own rule here. You said we were going to stop. Oh, <laughs> uh, again, I, I know we, we, we can go on and on, but um, aside from that, is there any other shout outs you want to give out, uh, Matt? Um, no, I, I, the other name that, that I, I think deserves a ton of credit in this is, is Chris Cabetto, okay. um, who was so open-minded and accommodating mm-hmm. and, and willing to work with us. Um, that, you know, I, I think he deserves all the credit in the world as well. So I, like I said, the big thing for me is that I don't want people thinking I'm trying to take credit for mm-hmm. work that was, that they did. Yeah. Um, because a lot of people did more than I did, um, to, to make this a reality. And yeah. I, I want to make sure that they, they get the credit that's due, but that's it. All right. Well, with that being said, um, you know, I enjoyed uh, talking to uh, that prelude kid. Um, and, you know, um, I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing you in person uh, over at uh, VAR for uh, Hyperfest, if that is something that you're able to do um, for next year. So with that, guys, I think that's it. And I will see you next Monday. Thanks.